Good morning again. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to a couple places. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then also uh, Galatians chapter 5. sure that worked before I got going. So there was something of a journey uh, for me as I, as I put this uh, study together. Um, I originally started off with uh, the desire to study joy. Uh, it was one of those um, personal desires, uh, convictions, noting, noting that I needed more joy in my life. And so uh, sat out kind of on a journey to discover joy and to how to attain it. Uh, and then as I began to study joy, it eventually led me to the fruit of the Spirit. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's true. There are a, a lot more fruits that I have available to me. And, and then it was like, oh, now there are too many options, too many options. So I was like, well, logical thing, I'll start with the first fruit. So kind of put joy aside. Um, but one thing to note, go back one, there we go. Um, <laughs> joy is different than happiness. And that was, that was one of the things I saw was uh, joy is different than happiness. And the difference being is that happiness is how you feel based upon your circumstances and if they're favorable to you or not. Um, whereas joy comes from within. It's, it's an internal, uh, regardless of your circumstances, you still have joy. And really that comes from the source of joy, uh, which of course is God. And so again, that's, that's what led me to the fruit of the Spirit. So real quick, with your thumb in 1 Corinthians, uh, flip over to uh, Galatians, because we're going to be kind of bouncing back and forth eventually uh, between those two. So in Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 22, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so, again, I was kind of confronted with, oh, well, there's more than joy. I need, I need these things as well. And so it was like, yeah, give me some of that. So started in the first fruit, love. That was, again, kind of my logical. I'm taking you down the path of my, of my logical progression here. Um, and uh, as Allison know, my sermon changed a little bit a couple of times. Uh, I was like, Allison, can we change the title again? And so, love. What is love? So a lot of people have a general idea of what love is. Um, I mean, you can go from, you know, I love hamburgers, all the way to, you know, I just love everybody. 
And, you know, these days, that's kind of the, the push. You need to love everybody. Um, and really, that, that type of love is more you need to accept who I am uh, because I don't want to feel guilty about what I do, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's not true love. In Scripture, or rather in the Greek, uh, they have a, a, a few key words for love. There's, of course, uh, eros, which is the erotic love usually found, you know, it's the romantic love. It's between a husband and a wife, usually. Um, and then you have the phileo love, which is a deep affection between friends. And usually you see phileo appear quite a bit in Scripture. And then, of course, you have the agape love, which is the God love only found and only comes from God. And so that is the type of love we're going to be looking at here today in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So go ahead and flip back to 1 Corinthians 13. And we did read it this morning, but I'm going to be going through it uh, verse by verse. The first three verses tell you what love is not. It's kind of interesting to see the comparison. The first three verses are what love is not. The next few verses are what love is. And then there's a, a deeper explanation of what love is in the corresponding verses after that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, start in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I pondered for a minute. I was like, okay, so the, the tongues of men and of angels, what, it, what exactly does that look like? And really, it comes down to, uh, you could actually take it a couple of different ways. There is, the, there is the way of the tongues of men being able to speak in front of people eloquently. And then you have the tongues of angels, which in some cases of the New Testament, it's referred to as the gift of tongues. But then also, I've also heard that the uh, the meaning for the tongues of men and of angels, again, is uh, not only being able to talk in front of people eloquently, but to do so with almost a heavenly-type eloquence uh, to where people are persuaded by what you have to say. And so the, the point is here, especially in Paul's day, uh, eloquence, well, I guess really in all eras, uh, eloquence is highly respected. And if somebody is a good speaker, you're more apt to listen to them. And if they're a really good speaker, they can actually persuade you, possibly, in how you think. And so Paul was saying, you know, if, if I was an eloquent speaker, if I could persuade you to think any way I wanted you to, uh, but I don't have love, all of that is pointless. I'm actually compared to a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, and in some cases, it, uh, in some translations of scripture, uh, it talks about um, you know, a brass instrument. Um, compare that to something soothing and pleasing. It's not very pleasant. So basically, Paul was saying, without love, without true love, I may as well just be banging a cymbal, making noise. That's all I'm doing is I'm making noise. It's pointless. It doesn't matter how good it sounds. If I don't have love, if this is not coming from a true source of love, then really what you're hearing is just words, empty words. And that's definitely something that uh, 
as I present the, the word of God to you, it's something usually that's very heavy upon me, is the fact that I need to speak what God wants me to speak and not what I want to speak. Or I don't want to stand up here talking to you because I feel like it brings me glory in some way. Rather, I want to bring Christ glory. We move on to verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So I can be, I can have all of the answers in the world. I can know all there is to know. I can be highly educated, have multiple PhDs. I can answer deep mysteries of the universe to you. But if I don't have love, really, I'm nothing. I can have amazing powers. I can do uh, amazing things for the world. But again, if I don't have love, it still means nothing. If I give all that I have, in verse 3, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this is more of a... um, which you might say a religious fervor. Uh, there are many people who are, even in, even in Christianity, who are so zealous for the religion uh, that they will do anything. They will go to extremes in order to promote that religion and in order to uh, promote what they think is right. Even if it is right, we had that discussion today in, in uh, Bible study, Sunday school, of somebody who professes to follow Christ, who works very hard at um, following the, the religion of Christianity, but without a true faith, without a true relationship with Christ, it, it means nothing. In Matthew Jesus says, there will be many who come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do all of these wonderful things in your name? And what is his response? Depart from you. I never knew you. And he, he goes so far as to call them uh, lawless. And you think, well, they were good people. They did good things for God. But without that connection to God, it was empty. It was pointless. And so that is what love is not. Love does not need to... If, let me put it this way. If a person has love, they do not need to promote themselves uh, to you in order to uh, build up their own selves. Now we focus on what love is, verses 4 through 7. This is where we begin to dig into it a little bit. In verse 4, love is patient and is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. How patient are you? See, really, this is kind of a, as we go through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you're going to see what love is not. 
which some of that is kind of obvious. Some of it's maybe not so obvious. But then you see what love is, and this is where we're at at the moment. And it is showing you in great detail what love looks like so you can compare it to yourself. Love is patient and is kind. There are times where I think, yes, I'm, I'm definitely very patient. Uh, I definitely have much kindness. I don't envy. I don't boast. I'm not boasting now, saying that I don't boast, right? <laughs> I'm not arrogant. Is it arrogant to say I'm not arrogant? If you're ever in question as to uh, what love looks like, you can always go back to the true embodiment of love, which is Jesus when he was here on earth. One of the scriptures is in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 14. Uh, little backstory: John the Baptist had just been beheaded, and uh, his disciples had come to Jesus and said, hey, you know, John has just been executed. And so it says... Uh, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat. Now, so Jesus had been uh, ministering to the crowd. He had been uh, serving the people. He had been healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, doing many miracles, preaching the gospel, uh, as well as walking with his disciples. So when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a, des a desolate place by himself. Jesus was... perfectly God, but also perfectly man. He still needed to withdraw and recharge, and you find that many times in Scripture. Uh, he, would, he would withdraw from the crowd and go off to a place and pray, and he would spend time with the Father and essentially recharge. And so at this time, Jesus withdrew to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from towns, Notice plural, towns. So it's people coming from all over the place. Hey, there goes Jesus. And so people begin to mass, in mass, follow him. And what was his response? It says, and when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd. Now me personally, I'd be like, there's nothing, unfortunately, nothing more important to me sometimes than rest and sleep. And if I feel deprived in that area, I tend to get grumpy. And so my first response would have been, ah, I was trying to get away from these people. I need, just give me some space. I need to breathe. Let's see, but it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He didn't get a chance to take a break. He didn't get a chance to take a breather. And it wasn't just a few people. It said many people from the towns surrounding the area. And they weren't necessarily coming to Christ just because uh, they sensed in him eternal life and they wanted to hear more of his words. That may be some. But for the most part, they were coming to him because they wanted something. And that can be even more draining on somebody, if, if you constantly have people asking you for things, demanding of you things, uh, after a while, you know, you're like, you know what, just enough. Give me a second here. But Jesus was very patient and very kind. 
Verse 5, love is not rude. (laughs) That one kind of struck me. Again, the response, it ties into being patient. Jesus' response was not uh, one of rudeness, uh, but again, of great patience and love. Compassion. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. That one also struck me. There are many times where, again, I feel bent out of shape or, or in some way pushed because I'm not getting what I want. Even something simple. Again, like, I need a few minutes of rest. Give me a few minutes. And if I, if I don't get what I want, what I expect, what I think I deserve, I tend to be annoyed at the very least. And life has a tendency to do that. It's not like, okay, here's a trial. Ah, oh, good, now that you've got through it, you know what, go take a break, go rest. You've got a few days. That's not usually how it works. Usually life seems to just, it's one thing after another, after another, after another. And you just, after a while, you're like, I don't know if I can take anymore. And really, because we believe that God is in control of all things, God usually uses our lives, our trials, those things that just seem to happen one after another, in order to remind us that, yeah, that's right, you can't do this on your own. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but... So love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't hold on to bitterness and anger. There are times where it's very easy to hold on to bitterness, to have resentments uh, because somebody has wronged you and sometimes repeatedly and just sometimes the thought of that person can suddenly flare up those resentments. You feel the bitterness inside. And in reality, bitterness, just like the word shows in its definition, um, it tastes very bitter. It will begin to make you bitter from the inside out. And sometimes it's not a matter of just, well, you just need to let it go. Because letting it go, just letting it go, is one of those things to where you might be able to do it for a season, for a time, until it happens again. And then it all flares up. You might be able to let it go and go, you know what, it's okay. I'm rolling off my back. I'm good until something happens again. And then it's like it all comes back and you go, yeah, it's just like the last 30 times when you did this to me. Jesus and his disciples had an interesting conversation about forgiveness. They came to him and said, you know, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And, you know, note, they didn't say, how often should I forgive my enemy 
who sins against me. It was my brother, somebody close, uh, causing a deep hurt. How often do I have to forgive an individual who causes a deep hurt against me? Seven times? I can do seven times. What was Jesus' response? No, I say seven times 70. That's roughly about, what, 490 times? The funny thing about that is you think, okay, 490 times. Yeah, that's, that's about a year for me. <laughs> if you're keeping track, then you're not really forgiving. So forgiving is not holding on to that resentment. Does that, it doesn't mean that you forget. It doesn't mean that you immediately put your trust into that person again. But that it does mean that you have to let go of those resentments. And when we say letting go, it means surrendering it to Christ, not just letting it go. Not just, okay, you know, I can kind of shake it off and move on. It's taking it to Christ and saying, Lord, this, there they go again. Help me to not hold on to bitterness and resentments, anger. Because that is in direct contrast. It's contrary to Christ. It's contrary to who he is. Love does not rejoice, in verse 6, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. There's kind of two parts to the wrongdoing. So one of the more obvious is love does not rejoice at sin. And you can kind of go as deep as you want with that thought. Does not rejoice at sin. Again, that's kind of an obvious thing. Do you find sin funny? Do you find sin enjoyable? Uh, a lot of times, yes. But we're, we are reminded that that is not a good thing. If you know it's sin, do not entertain it. Do not rejoice in it. But then there, the other side of the uh, meaning of that is you don't rejoice when something bad happens to somebody. Now that one hit a little bit harder and closer for me because uh, I can be sometimes like the psalmist to where, Lord, I want to pray a precatory prayer right now. Um, can you bring all of the curses down upon that individual? Is that a bad thing to pray? It's okay to be honest with God and to do that and say, Lord, I just, you know, if you were to just vaporize them right now, that would be okay with me. And if you confess that to God, he has a way of going, well, no, that's, I'm not going to do that. They're in your life on purpose. And we're going to deal with your anger. We're going to go back to resentments. You don't have anger. You don't build up bitterness. And so when something, a calamity does befall, let's say, that person, there's sometimes a response of, <laughs> good, karma. And we have to be careful about doing that. For the judgments of God, if it is true judgment upon that person, is not something to rejoice in. 
Rather, you should respond with noting that God does oftentimes bring retribution to people. And that is a heavy thing. And Lord, use this to bring them to you, to change their heart, to make them see the need for you. And that's what rejoicing in the truth is. Rejoicing in things that please God. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fix your mind on these things. Let them shape how you think. Let them shape how you respond. And then we move to verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This took me a while to kind of get through. Love bears all things. Are we to bear one another's burdens? Yes, we're told in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. We are to... Be an encouragement to one another. It's not always easy. But another definition for bears all things is also to not look for the evil in somebody. Now, we are all totally depraved. We're all sinners by nature. So it's not very hard to look at somebody and go, yeah, you're messed up. Yep, we all are. And that particular thing that's annoying you sometimes is a reflection of what's inside your own heart. But it's very easy to point the finger at somebody else to say, you know what? That person over there, that group over there, they are, they are way messed up. And what we end up doing is we elevate ourselves in that process. We say, you know what? They're messed up and I'm not so messed up. Makes me feel better about myself because they're really bad and I'm not so bad. And really that's what we end up doing inside. Love believes all things. Does that mean that I'm going to go through life oblivious to the fact that there are things that are not true? Do I just believe everything that comes my way? No, that's not what the scripture is talking about. Again, it's giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. It's not looking for the negative in somebody. It's having to be vulnerable a little bit and say, okay, what you're saying right now, I'm going to take and weigh. Love hopes all things. We talked about it before. The, when God brings judgment upon somebody, there is a hope, Father, that you will use this to change their lives. 
and love endures all things. There's much patience required for having love. So I have to pause for a moment. So a lot of people, as they read 1 Corinthians 13, they think of uh, Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then they go over to someplace, like I said, 1 Corinthians 13, and they go, okay, this is what love looks like. Love is patient and love is kind. And they go through this and they make a checklist. And it's, I will daily lace up my boots and I will do these things. Now, it is not a bad thing to strive to be like Christ, to let him change your life, to say, yes, Lord, I, I need to be patient. Create patience in me. By the way, when you pray that sort of thing, be warned that God will use trials and things in order to shape patience. It's like saying, you know what? Looking in the mirror going, um, I'm kind of a slender person. And, and I see characters on TV, and I think they are not so slender. In fact, they're rather manly. And I would like to be manly like that. And I look in the mirror and say, you need to be more manly. And that's as far as it goes. <laughs> because I don't want to get up early in the morning and do push-ups and lift weights and run however many miles. But in reality, if you want things like patience, if you want things like kindness, you're going to be given weights to lift. God will give you things to overcome. But what's really cool about that is that it's God who's giving it to you because he's going, okay, it's time to build yourself up spiritually. It's time to strengthen the inner man. And to do so, you have these tasks that I'm going to give you. But I'm going to give you the strength and the ability to do those things. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. I don't rub a magic lamp and I suddenly have massive biceps. Again, it requires work. So again, it is not a bad thing to say, okay, Lord, I, I would love to be patient. I would love to be more kind. I don't want to envy. I'm feeling convicted as I read this. But it's not a checklist for you to go down and do each day. Rather, it's a list of prayers. Lord, help me to be patient right now. Give me strength to be patient today. It's a moment-by-moment moment thing. And you will find that as you surrender more to Christ in that manner, he will begin to shape patience, etc. All of the attributes of love within you. But you have to be willing to listen. And that's, again, some of the hard parts of walking with Christ is my flesh, why do I do the things I don't want to do? My flesh pulls and says, no, you deserve to be mad at that individual. You deserve to be absolutely outraged. You are justified. In some cases, yes, I, I can say I am justified in being angry. But then 
the Holy Spirit prompts my heart and says, you know, no, you are not justified in being angry. You have no right to be angry. You have no rights, period. Because you are, you belong to me. And that's the hard part. Saying, either giving into the flesh or saying, yes, Lord, give me patience, give me grace, give me love. And so like the law, the law was supposed to be there to show people what? How to live, but also to show them how inadequate they were. So as you read through, let's say, the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, as you read through 1 Corinthians 13, as you go through all the various places in Scripture where God says, this is how you should be, really, this is what perfection looks like. This is what God looks like. And you are being measured against perfection. Do you measure up to this? And our response, our immediate response should be, no, Lord. I in no way come close to even measuring up to that. And that is the proper response. Because then God can say, correct. So that's where I come in to fill you. It's dangerous to look at a list and say, okay, yeah, I can do those things. I can attain that. You'll get so far, and then you will run into an issue where you're either totally oblivious to the fact that you've never attained it, or you just go so absolutely depressed and frustrated because you can't attain it on your own. Now we get into a different attribute of love. Love is eternal. So we're, we are reminded in this scripture. So okay, so this is what love doesn't look like. Again, some of that's kind of obvious. It's like if you go back to Galatians, uh, right before the fruit of the Spirit are listed, uh, Paul says, and the works of the flesh are evident. And he goes down this long list of all of the nasty things that people do, and there's kind of a and et cetera at the end of that long list. Some of those things are kind of obvious. And then God goes, okay, so this is, but this is what it does look like. And you read through the list and you go, <laughs> yeah, I fall short. So I may not be as bad as some of these things, but I could probably pick out a few, in the, few things in the bad list that I do. And then compared to the, the list of what love, let's say, looks like, you see your own inadequacies. And so you're left, Lord, what do I do? And this is where love is eternal comes in. Love never ends, period. It's kind of an interesting beginning to this. Keep in mind, love never ends, i.e., love is eternal. And then Paul lists, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So Paul lists three things that uh, are kind of a big deal in the church, prophecies. And we're not necessarily talking about foretelling the future. We're talking about uh, being able to uh, expound on God's word, speak into people's lives from God's word. That is a, that's an excellent thing. Tongues, they will cease. Being able to speak to people with what God gives you to say. 
that will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. We all know that knowledge is a good thing. But Paul is addressing it from a different perspective because you think, well, knowledge, we will know when we get to heaven and surely talking to, excuse me, talking to each other about Christ in heaven is something that we'll be doing, correct? And you go, well, yes. So what does he mean here? He's addressing the the physical aspects. We dwell in earth right now. We dwell in a physical realm. Those things, these three things are part of the Christian life, but as we know them now, they will pass away. For we know in part, in in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Again, God gives us revelation from his word to speak to our hearts and to speak to each other. But it's only in an imperfect way that we see and understand some of this stuff. We don't know all there is to know yet. We don't fully understand. We don't fully grasp. But, verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That which is not perfect will pass away. It's a promise. When Christ returns, when we are with him for eternity, we won't have to worry about the flesh that hinders us any longer. Verse 11, when I was a child, Paul does a comparison. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. A comparison. While on this earth, essentially, you're kind of like a child. You have limited abilities, limited understanding. You'll, You'll gain things, you will gain understanding, you will gain abilities, you will grow. But you're only going to be able to do so much. And when we are in Christ's presence, we will be fully mature. It's like becoming an adult. Hopefully, if you're an adult, you are mature. It's questionable sometimes with me, but. um, Paul does that comparison. While we're here on earth, it's like being a child. We are limited. In his presence, it's like being an adult, roughly, where you're not limited so much or in his presence at all. We will have given up what's here in exchange for glory. For now we see in a mirror dimly, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, a promise. For now we see things dimly. It's like looking in a, if you've gotten out of the shower and steam hits the mirror, and you can't see a thing. And you go, okay. So you grab a towel, you try to wipe it down, and a lot of times it's still kind of weird. It's not perfectly clear like you just took Windex to it. It's, it's still kind of foggy a little bit. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But when we're in his presence, we will see him face to face. Now I know in part. 
I understand partially. And this is Paul we're talking about. He's, he's saying this of himself. And Paul is one of those great biblical heroes that we, you know, we consider them kind of a superhero. He knew everything. He had it all down. And Paul is like, you know what? No, I don't have it all down. I'm still learning daily. I only know what I've been shown now. But in his presence, I won't have that hindrance any longer. I won't be hindered by this flesh any longer. And so, too, for us, again, that's a promise of when we are in his presence, we will be able to experience and have full and perfect love without any hindrance. And then I got to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So again, faith, hope, they will be in eternity as will love, but love without love, those two can't really exist. That's why it says the greatest of these is love. And so when I read that verse, again, keep in mind, I was still going through the process of, okay, I'm going to, uh, I start off with joy. I need joy. And then I ran into the fruits of the Spirit, and I was like, oh yeah, I need, I need all of those things too. Well, I'll start off with love. And I started digging into love. How to attain love. And of course, the obvious place to go is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So as I read through it, I was like, okay, okay, got this, got this. And then I got to verse 13. It said, but the greatest of these is love. And there was a question, okay, why is it the greatest? And so then I, I had to go back to Galatians again. And I began to realize something. But the fruit of the Spirit, important part, is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And we kind of go through that list quickly. Without love, you can't have joy. Without joy, you can't have peace. Without peace, it's very, very hard to have patience. Without patience, you're not going to have kindness. Kindness will lead to goodness, which is faithfulness to Christ, which leads to more gentleness, and ultimately is self-control. But again, you can't have any of those things without love. And it, it's obvious, I know, but it struck me that, and we all know this, but love is the essence of Christ. It is the essence of God. It is who he is. And love is multifaceted. And it is like a rope, so to speak, of many strands that are wound together to create that rope. And again, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the fruit of me. It's God. It's, again, the essence of Christ. And when we have him 
living in us that way, producing that fruit, when we are surrendering to him daily, uh, what does that look like? <laughs> One of my favorite hymns is It Is Well With My Soul. And through the study, that was one of the hymns that was going through my mind. And then I remembered some of the history regarding the hymn. You have Horatio Spafford in 1873. Some of you know the history. Lost a large portion of his fortune in the Chicago fire sent his family on to England. He was going to start up again and try to recover some of his losses. And he sent them on ahead. And on the way, their ship was rammed by another ship in such a way that the ship sank quickly and there were not many survivors. So put yourself in Horatio's position. He gets word that ship went down a lot of people lost, don't know. You know, there, there was no internet back then. There was no Fox News coverage. There was no, none of that. And so anxiously awaiting was my family, one of those that perished. And then he gets a telegram from his wife. When she finally makes it, she was the lone survivor, and she reports that. I alone survived. And their children, their three children, died. That sort of loss can totally suck the life out of you. And so he follows, he eventually follows and goes across to England as well and requested that he be notified when they reach the place where the ship sunk and he's notified and as they're going over the location where the ship sank he has these words that he's penned when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say or to know he had originally written no and it was changed to say it is well, it is well with my soul. And then he repeats, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. I seriously doubt he said that with great joy or with passiveness, but rather his paper, I'm sure, was bespeckled by tears as he wrote those words because he's not just saying, well, oh well, or yeah, I'll see them again. It's a, this is an act of surrender. You're seeing an act of surrender be written on the page. Father, I don't understand why this happened and why we have to go through this. I don't understand or like the pain, but I will say, Father, I trust you. And so it is well within my soul. We read the scripture today in Sunday school, and it caught my eye. It's not up here, but I put it in my notes. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Note that word fragrance. And then we come to Acts chapter 14 verse, or excuse me, chapter 4 verse 13. Now when they, the people, saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated. They knew that they were from Galilee. They, they didn't go to college. They didn't have PhDs. These were very simple fishermen. They were common men. And the crowd was astonished. This is the last part. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They carried about him the essence of Christ. They exuded, they had that fragrance of Christ about them. It wasn't just, yeah, I know Jesus, and you should know Jesus too. And it, it wasn't the charismatic pulpit preacher that you would see necessarily on TV to pick fun at them a little bit. There was something different about these men. And the people keyed into it. You've been with Jesus because they knew the character of Christ and these men also exuded that same character. It was not just merely words and things that they were professing. It was truly seen from within. So the question, our takeaways. Do you have the essence of Christ in your life daily? Question, how do you get it? If you don't know Jesus, you have to know Jesus first. You have to accept him into your life. You have to surrender your heart to him. You have to profess him. You have to come before him and say, Lord, I, I believe who you are. I believe what you did, and I surrender my life to you, and I will follow you from this day on. And note, if you do that, two things happen. One, it's totally amazing. You will be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But you will have trials that you have to work through. Funny thing, we have trials anyway in life. And I would much rather go through trials with Christ than try to gut it out and do it myself. But if you know Christ, and this is where I was like, Lord, because honestly, as I was doing this study, I started off very confident. Okay, this is what I need to do. And I'm going to tell everybody else what they need to do too. And through the weeks as I, as I did the study, this last week as I did the study, I was reminded that no, you, you don't have it down. You don't have it all nailed down. And it was, Lord, I'm failing miserably. It's funny how God does that. Lord, I'm failing miserably. How can I proclaim these truths to people when I am failing so miserably myself? And God reminded me, joy, love, the fruit of the Spirit, it's not something that you can go, okay, I've got it, and now I can just use it to its fullness. Or I, you know, okay, I'll pull it out when I need it. That's not how it works. 
It's not a, a power-up for you gamers. It's not an upgrade. Can't download an app and suddenly I've got it. You know, a couple upgrades here and there, we'll be good. This is something that's a day-by-day -day work in progress. This is what sanctification is all about. Getting in detail, this is what sanctification is all about. If you want love, this is where we begin to work on it daily. And it's not one of those things of, okay, huh, pretty patient. Lord, I got patience. And God, well, yeah. You, you do have some patience that I've given you. Now let's take it to the next step. Level up. I always joke that, you know, I was, uh, I was told one time, you've heard this before, that I had the patience of Job. And I thought to myself, huh, yeah, I am pretty patient. <laughs> that was before I was married. I was still very patient after I got married. And then I had children. And I was like, Lord, what happened? Where did all of that patience go? My power-up is not working. And God reminded me, well, yeah, you had patience up to that point with what I was giving you. You were pretty sheltered up till that point. And now that you have children, we've entered into the next level. And then other things come my way. And I, I do not have patience. And so, Lord, give me patience. Give me love. Give me joy. And one of, I, I pray frequently, Lord Jesus, help me to love my children as you love me. And help me to love my wife as you love the church. Because I cannot do this on my own. What I have is so inadequate. I heard a definition one time in closing that love True love does not expect an equal return. And if you look at how Christ loved us when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God, and he loved us at that time and continues to love us, even when we inadequately respond to him, he does not expect an equal return. It's impossible for us to return that type of love to him without him. And so again, walk with Jesus. Let him conform you into his image. Let his spirit overflow in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that we have your word. Thank you for hope in you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're always with us, uh, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for your strength. Lord, bless us this week as we bless us today. As we leave this brief moment of respite here at church, Lord, and enter the world again, I pray that you would give us strength, give us joy, give us love. Overflow in us, Father. Help us to surrender to you daily. Help us to listen to you. Help us to press into you daily. To love your word, to desire you more. I pray, Father, that we would carry the fragrance, the essence of you. Father, that others would see you in us. Thank you again, Jesus, for your patience and your grace. I do love you and I praise your name. Amen.